0: Welcome to Brands Unbridled, a podcast brought to you by Storyhorse. We are a Chicago-based branding house with the strategic know-how and creative muscle to build brands that not only make an impact, they last. You can learn more about us at StoryhorseBranding.com. Brands Unbridled is our platform to ask big questions, hear from great brands, and get a pulse on what's new and what's next in the industry. I'm Liza Nikitas, Director of Production and Partnerships with Storyhorse, and today I'm very excited to be joined by Matt Matros, a serial entrepreneur with a super diverse background and extensive experience launching brands in industries ranging from food and beverage to media. Matt is the driving force behind several brands you know and love. He started health-focused, fast-casual restaurant chain Protein Bar before setting his sights to the beverage world as a co-founder of Limitless Coffee and Tea. And his latest venture is ShopFlix Studios, a streamable, shoppable video network for brands and founders to tell their stories. So we're going to talk about all that and more today. So welcome, Matt.
1: That was quite an intro. I'm going to get unbridled now because of that. Oh, wow. That was amazing. Love it. Did my mom provide the (laughs) copy? She's my biggest fan.
0: Love it. Love it. So let's jump right in. So, Matt, you graduated from business school at the University of Michigan. You got your footing in the marketing world at Kraft Foods, as you have uh, put it in the past, quote unquote, sling and cheese. And so we're going to start with a little bit of a hardball. What would you say was the biggest lesson that you took away from your time there that you have since been able to apply to your business ventures?
1: Yeah, so I get this question a lot as it relates to folks that are considering going back to business school. Many times folks will ask the question, hey, what did what did you learn at business school vis-a-vis starting your own company? And I actually tell them that it was my craft Foods experience that more equipped me to, for entrepreneurship than did, did um, business school. Uh, namely, craft sort of helped me think in terms of, um, steps and procedures and sort of like the antecedents and precedents of, of things. So how that manifests itself in building a restaurant, it's not just a matter of putting a fridge or an oven in one place. You then need to think about all the associated steps. Like you have to put a, an electrical outlet there. And if you have an electrical outlet, do you have enough electrical? Where are you going to pull it from? So, um, Kraft sort of helped me think that no single decision is ever in a vacuum. It always has a series of things that are related to it. Um, Second one that Kraft helped me with is um, this idea of of teamwork and leading uh, a team of functions. So in brand management... The joke is that you never actually really do anything. <laughs> um, you know, at brand management at craft, you have your R and D people doing the formulas and there you yeah. have your salespeople selling it in and you have logistics people getting it on the shelf. Um, entrepreneurship's kind of the same way. You know, uh, you're selling
0: I, yourself short.
1: Well, I drive the idea and I came up with the insight, but then I have to hire amazing identity firms to help bring the identity to life. I have to hire people depending on what the function is to help um, with the sales and I have to hire technical based folks to help with that. So craft sort of helped me think um, in those terms. So it was a wonderful experience as term in terms of becoming an
0: entrepreneur, even prior to craft, um, you and even prior to business school, you start actually started your career as an agent. Are there any parallels that you can draw between that job and your foray, your many forays into entrepreneurship?
1: Yeah, if the listeners could could see me now. They'd see I'm smiling. Yeah, so I, I started my career as a sports agent, but I didn't start as a sports agent. I started as a... Is this like entourage inter- style? Very much entourage. It was more Jerry Maguire.
0: Got uh, it. Jerry got Maguire
1: it. was very realistic of of what the life was like. I started working for Beverly Hills Sports Council, mm-hmm. major baseball agency, Mike Piazza, Jose Canseco, Curt Schilling, and a number of others, Um this was in the pre-internet days. Um, oh, or wow. sort of like. So the, you're really old. I'm really old. I'm 42. This was, well, not really the pre-internet, but the pre-ubiquitous internet that we know today. In fact, I'll never forget sitting in my office as a sports agent. This must have been 2000 or 2001. And I had an intern who came in and said, hey, have you heard about this thing, Google? <laughs> um, so just to kind of put things in perspective. Wow. But my sports agent experience uh, taught me about resourcefulness. So breaking down walls used to be the expression. So... It, we were a service-based business doing things on behalf of our baseball player clients. And if the clients wanted something, we would have to get it done. So you had to find ways to break down those walls to get it done. It was never a matter of going back to the client and saying, no, I couldn't get this or I couldn't sure. get the tickets to this or this person wasn't interested. It was just find a way to get it done. And I, that's always stuck with me um And it's sort of been the foundation, for me at least, of the entrepreneurship. I encourage a lot of young people to get jobs early on in sort of uh, cold outreach or sales. And even if you aren't working in sales, have some element of your life or work being in cold outreach because it helps you deal with this resourcefulness and also the rejections that come with it. Um, So I think for young people, it's an an important skill to learn. And that's what I picked up at the sports agency.
0: Nice. (laughs) Nice. I think we're all a little bit in sales, right? Too. I mean, even if it's not your what you're technically getting paid to do, it's it's a part of of any job. And I think putting in your time in the in the cold calling world, I think, is a a nice rite of passage for anyone. It's character building. You
1: know? It's character building, yeah. but it's hard to hear no's, yeah. right? But um, for a lot of young people who've only been said yes, be that they're by their parents or you know whatever it is, it's it's good to get those no's and yeah. put a little chip on the shoulder.
0: Okay, so taking a step back even further prior to sports agency, prior to craft, prior to U of M, you grew up in LA as a quote unquote fat kid. And those are, I want to be clear to our listeners. Those are your words, Mm -hmm. not mine. And after your father died suddenly of a heart attack at the very young age of 48, you uh, were inspired to adopt a high protein diet and really uh, began focusing on your health. And once you were well on that path, beginning to train for your first triathlon was when inspiration for the first protein bar restaurants struck. So can you share a little bit more about how, um, you know, your interactions with overpriced protein shakes at the gym helped to kind of spark this aha moment for you?
1: Yeah, it's I was the fat kid and it doesn't help that my name is Matt, which obviously rhymes with fat because kids can be... Quite, Ouch. quite mean. Yeah.
0: Kids are the worst.
1: It was, it was hard, admittedly. Yeah. Um, uh, my father did pass away. I was 11. Uh, he was 48. He had a heart attack in the middle of the night. And then I found once I was working for the sports agency, you know, 10, 11, 12 years later that I was headed towards this unhealthy path. Um, this was in the late nineties, early two thousands, back when Atkins diet, low carb were started, starting to become trends. Um, and I tried it, um, and it worked for me. Ended up losing about 60 pounds in a summer, nice. summer 2001. Uh, fast forward a few years later, then yeah, I was working at Kraft Foods, getting into triathlon, um, would work out at Lifetime Fitness in Old Orchard, still a beautiful gym. And <laughs> after working out there every morning, I'd get a, a serious soy was the name of the drink. Oh, wow, it was you a remember? protein shake and it was like six bucks. And I'd always get extra protein cause they used to put these tiny scoops in. So for like $8, I was drinking these protein shakes. After about a year of that, I started scooping protein into a bag. I don't know why it took me a year, but it took me a year to finally bring the protein and other supplements to the gym. And then after I'd work out, I would give it to them and they would um, charge me maybe $2 for the milk and the banana. Oh, uh, that's great. So I was about a year and a half of that. And then finally the ding, 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 aha moment is, oh, I want to open a protein shake shop. So that was the original Um, consumer insight around Protein Bar is that people don't want these unhealthy shakes. At the time it was Jamba Juice, which some folks don't even know what Jamba Juice is anymore. But uh, the insight was that uh, smoothies in general are full of sugar and soon people will catch on to that and Protein Bar can be that outlet. So that was October of 2007, spent a few months business planning and then in January of 08 decided, hey, I'm going to go do this.
0: So the time between this idea of opening a shake shop, as you put it, we all know it became so much more, but that was the initial idea. And so the time between that and the time of the opening of the first protein bar was two years, which to me feels incredibly short. Um, What was that time period like for you it was
1: it's funny to me it was incredibly long so yeah the the original insight was october of 07 that's when i said okay i'm doing this and i still never will forget my best friend in the whole wide world dave still my best friend um i drive to the office when i had the idea it was october 17th 07 and i sent this big long email with the subject line i wish i could find this email but it said this is it, we're doing this. And it laid out the whole business plan of what I wanted Protein Bar to be. Again, it was mostly a, a shake shop and less of a restaurant what it is now. Um, but I had that idea that gripped me. And I tell entrepreneurs that the best idea in the world is the one that they're obsessed with. You know, mm. It doesn't mean they're going to be a success or a failure, but if it's in your head and it won't go away, it's never going to go away. So you have sure. to do something about it. Yep. And that's how Protein Bar was for me. So every day after that mid-October idea every day was about waking up. What can I do to make this reality? So at the time I was working for Kraft Foods and admittedly I was sort of like the the top of the class, but by the time I left uh, to do protein bar, I certainly wasn't at the top of the class. So I'd shifted my focus, mm-hmm. um, spent the next few months business planning. Um, the thing that really took the most amount of time was finding retail space. So protein bar is a retail based business. Uh, one of the first things I learned was that I thought it was like you're when you look for a new apartment, you know, you go and you spend a weekend and you look at, you know, six or seven apartments and then you pick the one that you think is the best and yeah. then you move in. I thought commercial real estate would be the same thing. And to some extent it is, but it's really only a matter of what's available to you and mm-hmm. if what you are looking for isn't on the market, then you sort of have to wait. And that was what the position with Protein Bar was. I was looking at spaces and there was just nothing that was right for me. Mm-hmm. Finding a space facing the Sears Tower, and my thesis was: Listen, if I'm going to fail facing the Sears Tower, this concept was never going to work. Seventeen Eleven West Division. If I opened there and failed, I would have wondered: Like, sure. would it? Th- would this have worked for my consumer? Because at the time, my consumer is urban professionals. So I got to go where urban professionals are. Another mistake a lot of folks make with their business is they don't make it easy for their target consumer. In my experience, it was urban professionals that I wanted to be as my target. So I needed to go to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really what took the most amount of time to get the business going. And then all the while I'm working at Craft Foods and I used to block two to three on my calendar every day and I'd go into a conference room and that's when I would make all my calls to produce suppliers and real estate people and all that kind of stuff. I also got kind of lucky because I had a, a role within Craft at the time that was allowing me to come to the city a lot to meet with agencies and whatnot. So there would be several days when I would tell my boss, "Oh, I have an agency meeting in yep. the city." Was kind of the line, um, when in reality I'm getting up at 6 a.m. and going to the Jamba Juice in the Loop and counting how many smoothies are being sold. But
0: um, wow. I got pretty lucky. Finding the perfect sort of Goldilocks real estate was the big holdup there. But that you had already developed the identity. So, as a um, you know, as a as someone who works for a, a branding agency, can you talk more about that process and what? what was important to you, how that, how it went for you. Um, just talk about that process a little bit more.
1: After finding real estate for protein bar, the identity was really the most important thing or the, I'm sorry, the, well, let me back up. Identity is the most important thing, but it wasn't the first thing I started. It was the real estate search. I started, but then I needed to bring the brand to life. Um, so many folks will tend to try to save money on certain elements and branding is one of them. And it's, it's just such a big mistake because I like to think of branding as your one chance. It's your, you never get a second chance to make a first impression and you need the strongest identity and brand uh, to represent you as possible. So for me, it was a no brainer to hire a pro group. Um, so I interviewed several groups. and um,
0: I'm sure Storyhorse would have been among them had they existed Story at Horse the existed. If Storyhorse
1: had existed, you would have sure. probably been the agency of record. That is for sure. I'm very much you heard it here. Of,
0: you heard it here. You first, heard it here.
1: Rewind the clock. <laughs> um, in all seriousness, though, um, any organization or group that takes a, a positioning first approach takes a brand promise first approach. Um, is an agency that's for me. So to me, it's really understanding what the positioning of the brand is. So in protein bar parlance, it was we were positioned as a healthier alternative for urban professionals. I could do the whole positioning statement if you want, but um, it was finding an, an organization that could help bring that to life. But again, that process is really identifying the brand promise. So for protein bar, Gosh, it's evolved a little bit over the years, but I would say sort of like rewinding the clock. At the time, it was um the brand promises around a healthier alternative that is also as delicious. So the that was really around what the brand promises. And then later with Limitless, I had something similar and with Shopflex too. But um going through the positioning process, finding the agency to help pull that out of me, um, but it's really born out of the entrepreneur. Yeah, so no matter how great the agency is, it's really the entrepreneur and the entrepreneur's vision to lay out what the brand promise is. Because the agency will just sort of work in concert with that vision. The agency yeah. never really creates it. It just helps bring it to life.
0: And articulate it. And
1: articulate it, exactly. It's it's a translation, so to speak.
0: So you eventually decided that it was time to move on from Protein, protein Bar, um, you named a CEO of the company, and then um, sort of rode off into the sunset. <laughs> I'll, I'll say. Um, I got
1: fired. Did you? I got fired. Yeah. Um, not really, not literally, but you know, if you distill it down, it was a, a polite Matt take a quarter off, which I equate to to being fired, which I at, for about forty eight hours was the worst thing that ever happened, but now it was the best thing. So essentially, I sold the business. To Catterton Partners, very preeminent uh, consumer-focused private equity firm. To this day, still one of the best private equity firms in the world for consumers. So I'm grateful to have to work with them. And the business just after we sold just went. It was a Murphy's law of bad things that had happened, and many of those were my doing. Whether it was I had opened bad locations. Some of it were out of my control, such as Siberia. Like right after mm. Catterton buys <laughs> oh, the no. business. Three months later is Siberia, which for Chicagoans, this was the winter of 2014, the first time in modern history where we really had truly negative temperatures with lots of snow for many consecutive days. It was called Siberia and it was it started January 6th and went till about January 14th. Well being in the restaurant business in the loop kind of kinda hampers your business. So that happened.
0: Wow. You remember the dates that, that one really burned. It was was a a tough tough one. (laughs) I mean,
1: because I was riding high, we were, we had just sold majority of the business to Catterton. We had an amazing growth plan and it was all these little things that kind of were stub toes. And again, some of them were outside of my control, but some of them were within my control, such as opening some poor locations. And I'll admit we opened 24, 25 protein bar locations and you know, only a handful kind of sucked, right? We're talking three or four or five that really kind of stink.
0: It's a good hit rate.
1: Not in restaurants. In baseball, I'd be in the (laughs) the Hall of Fame, right? But in restaurants, you really need to be closer to like 90, 95%, especially as you're growing um, and growing so fast and as expensive as our stores were. So because of that, I just knew that the, the, I needed to relinquish control a little bit and Catterton helped me with that. To Catterton's credit, they said, Matt, you need some help. Do you want us to hire a president of the company who aspires to be the CEO one day? Do you want us to hire you uh sort of like your number two director of operations? Um, or do you want us to just hire you as CEO? And I said, no, let's, let's go find someone good, kind of president in nature, and then have that person sort of take over over time. And that's exactly what happened. We recruited a gentleman from Chipotle who came in and it was pretty... Pretty apparent early on that it was sort of mom and dad and that everybody was, all the decisions just flowed through Samir, this gentleman. Um, so it just made sense that I kind of got out of the way. So I took five months off, uh, traveled around the world. It was the greatest thing I've ever done. Well, at the time, it was the greatest thing I've ever done. I've since married an amazing woman and fathered a child and started another business. But at the time, it was quite wonderful, and I'm grateful for the experience that I got to, got to do that. And, but I did, yes, get fired.
0: Well... Turned out to be turned out to be a blessing because that trip that you just referenced was where inspiration struck again for Limitless, right in Bali. Mm-hmm. If I'm not mistaken. So you were motivated there to develop the brand, which, as you have put it, is the cleanest coffee in the world. The brand you officially founded it in March of 2016, and then sold it to Keurig Dr Pepper just shy of four years later. Can you talk a little bit about the inspiration for the brand and then kind of how that inspiration found its way into the look and the feel and the voice and, you know, otherwise identity. Of yeah,
1: it. this is actually a really good identity story because the brand I founded originally wasn't the brand that became what I sold to Kirk Dr. Pepper. Not too dissimilar from Protein Bar. In fact, I hate to admit it, but I've kind of been a failure, right? <laughs> like I started two things that both miserably failed. First was a protein shake shop. That failed miserably. Fortunately, I pivoted it to a restaurant. And then with Limitless, I started it as a coffee business. And now it's water. And now it's a water business. Thank God that it is. Um, But yeah, so I'm in Bali and we had a day off and I go, gosh, I haven't told this story in a while, but I'm in Bali on my sort of eat, pray, love trip, doing (laughs) a a yoga retreat with a bunch of middle-aged women from all over the world.
0: You're in Bali (laughs) getting fired.
1: in Bali after getting fired. And we had a day off and I um, someone said, hey, we're going to go check out this coffee farm down the street. They sort of do tours and it's kind of a neat thing. And a lot of people don't realize that Java is an island in Indonesia. So obviously Indonesia produces a lot of coffee. So we go to this coffee farm and I never really thought too much of it. But at the time, because I was just a fan of Howard Schultz. And I didn't even really drink coffee, but I wanted to sort of see how it was done. And it, it was an interesting process. It was what, what's, what's called a wet wash process of coffee beans. Again, didn't really think much of it. And then returned to the United States. And this was when Bulletproof Coffee was um, was making hay and they were claiming brain performance because of a clean coffee bean. And I said, I know exactly what they're talking about Mm -hmm. because I saw a clean farm. I went to a farm that in the world of coffee, there's two types of processing. There's wet wash or the beans sit out and sort of ferment. And it's in that fermenting process, they collect mold and toxins and what have you. Well, it's the wet wash process that produces a much like literally cleaner product. I said, all right, well, I'm I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna bring this clean coffee to the masses in the same way that Bulletproof was. So that vision of being in the coffee business was always meant to be sort of omni-channel in nature. You know, coffee is a business that's convenience focused. So let's get to the drinker with stores, right? Starbucks. Let's get to the drinker through wholesale. Let's go into their offices um, and let's get to the drinker in consumer package goods and grocery stores. So that was always sort of the big picture. I started with, Office Coffee, beautiful business, doing a couple million bucks of kegs into offices. It was a wonderful business. Our very first customer was the Chicago Cubs right in the clubhouse on opening day of the 2016 season. That was the year they won the World Series. So, of course, Chicago can thank Limitless Coffee for their assist. All you're doing. Well, I mean, if you look at the data, never had the Cubs drank Limitless Coffee and never had they won the World Series. And then the season that they bring it into the clubhouse, they win it all. So Chicago, you are welcome. So that was a beautiful business into offices and wholesale. Then I opened coffee shops and then I launched consumer packaged goods into grocery stores, which was a huge failure, huge, huge, huge failure. That failure was defined by my friend, Peter Rahal from RX Bar always says, you got a fish where the fish are biting. Um, and in the world of Refrigerated cold brew—it just wasn't a very large category. There's not a lot of fish biting. People don't buy coffee for three fifty on the go in a grocery store. Sure. Many people buy coffee for three fifty on the go at Starbucks or McDonald's or Dunkin' Donuts, but not in a grocery store. So it was just a, a poor business. Um, I put millions of dollars into, and unfortunately. I waste many therapy Thursday hours dealing with the failure of of that. However, I'm reminded by my therapist that if we're not for doing the coffee, I would have never discovered the water, which was born out of a day we were decaffeinating coffee beans in our roastery. When you decaffeinate coffee beans, you're left with this white powder. That white powder is pure caffeine. It gets extracted from the bean. Um, And it looks like many other pure white powders, as you can imagine. So I sprinkled it into my LaCroix and drank it and was like, wow, I feel great. I mean, I couldn't sleep till like Wednesday, (laughs) but I felt amazing. And this was in
0: late 2017.
1: This was when LaCroix was riding high. LaCroix was everywhere, but no one was doing a caffeinated LaCroix. So I said, aha, I will do it. Um, I spent the first month of 2018 cold calling bottlers and manufacturers all across the country uh, left a voicemail for the plant manager of the <laughs> there's a Dr. Pepper plant in suburban Chicago they just left a voicemail for the guy Dan Graham um, three weeks later the head of manufacturing for Kirk Dr. Pepper called me back and long story short Dr. Pepper ended up producing our product okay. so they were my co-packer and then I got a, a string of fortunate events starting with Dr. Pepper agreeing to be my co-packer happened which worked in my favor the first fortunate event after launching the water in May of 18, was the buyer of Walmart, the, be, the beverage buyer, emerging beverage buyer, a guy named Todd Wetmore. Um, guy changed my life. He had our product and said, hey, come on down to Walmart and let's talk. So I flew down to Walmart and he says, listen, this, your product's great, never seen anything like it. We wanna put you into Walmart. I said, that's amazing, like 100 stores as a test? He's like, no, no, no we wanna put you in Walmart. I'm like, great, like a thousand stores in the Midwest? He's like, No, we wanna put you into Walmart, forty four hundred stores. I reached my hand out and I said, I accept. <laughs> um, so that was, you know, life changing wow. luck, stroke of luck number one. Seriously. Um so then we get into Walmart and it It starts moving. All the while, Dr. Pepper sees that this guy, Matt, keeps calling and ordering water. Like, what is going on? This guy's got something going on. So we started talking to Dr. Pepper from a distribution perspective. Maybe they can distribute the product. Maybe they can get involved in some other way. And then lucky stroke of limitless luck number two came when Coca-Cola announced in whatever year that was, November whatever the year, 2018, that they finally are coming up with their answer to bubbly, mm-hmm. which was the answer to LaCroix and Coke is finally doing it. They're coming out with their, and their industry knew Coke was gonna do something. They couldn't sit back and and watch in sparkling water. And they had tried doing something with smart water sparkling. It just didn't really work. Dasani sparkling wasn't really working. They needed a canned sparkling water.
0: Cause Coke as AHA, right? Coke
1: is, so that was the announcement. Yeah. Was there, their Coke is launching AHA as mm-hmm. the brand. But the stroke of luck for me was that not only are they announcing AHA as the brand, but two of the SKUs are caffeinated, and oh by the way, they have 35 milligrams of caffeine. So that was just a big validator for me. So yeah, that's, that's when right. I got on the phone and said, "Dr. Pepper, all right, you know, time to pooper get it's off ready. the pot." Yeah. So, long story short, sold the brand to Kirk Dr. Pepper. But circling back, biggest all-time circle of all time right now, you <laughs> would ask about the branding. Part of the reason why the branding was important, which allowed me to pivot, was because we were never a coffee brand. Limitless was always about best self. So our brand promises around best self. Coffee just happened to be the conduit at the time. But when I started the water, I could have easily changed the brand, uh, done something else. From an investor perspective, it probably would have been better for me because I would have had an unencumbered um, investment. But... Limitless worked because we inspired best self, and that brand promise really fit and it allowed me to switch um to the water. Same with protein bar. Protein bar had a similar thing. It wasn't just around protein shakes, it was really around all things protein.
0: And now uh, and now protein bar is protein bar and restaurant now, too, right? Yeah, protein bar yeah. and kitchen. Uh,
1: PvK. They added the kitchen. Gosh, we tried so many things. We tried changing, it. we tried opening a restaurant called Thrive 360. Yeah, you because know, for years, it was always a, the name was always so divisive. People either love it, they hate it. Um, it wasn't until we, Protein Bar opened in Denver and D.C. did we realize how perhaps troubling the name could be. People just didn't know what it was. In Chicago, we had had the years of guerrilla marketing and what have you. Um, but in new markets, it was tough. People I just, always
0: thought it was clever because, you know, like a protein bar that you eat.
1: That's one thing. So people will walk in looking for, like, thinking it was a GNC. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, do you actually sell protein bars? So that was one. There was all sorts of different things that. So we had to do something, and we had tried a bunch of. Well, we had tried a different name, the Thrive Three Hundred and Sixty. That didn't work. And as simple as just adding kitchen to the name, who knew? Who knew? People then knew that it was a food place.
0: Fast forward to the spring of twenty twenty-one, which is just a few short weeks ago, to be exact. You ventured out of the food and beverage space as the founder of ShopFlix, which, as I mentioned in the tee-up, is a streamable, shoppable video network, say that five times fast, where brands and founders can tell their stories. And I'd love for you to share the story, because I think it's a great one, about how uh, your stroller search process led to this idea.
1: Yeah, so much like Protein Bar was born out of a Problem that I'd had for myself that I needed to solve. Same with Shoflix. So it, I just sold Limitless to Kirk Doctor Pepper. Uh, I still work for them as a consultant, helping with the brand and other things. But after selling to them January 2020, I'm you know working to integrate the brand, flying all around, and then obviously COVID hits, and that put the kibosh on travel. Um, my wife and I then get where my wife gets pregnant, and that's you know COVID summer. So we're a total COVID baby household. And then with us expecting a child, the first big purchase, you know, you have kids, but for me and my wife, the first big purchase was a baby stroller. What are we going to put the little guy into? Mm-hmm. You know, it's expensive and it there's so expensive. many different it's, options. Yeah,
0: one of the biggest ticket items <laughs> it's for sure. A,
1: it's a big ticket, but it's also you're putting your little guy in this or little girl in this thing and it's got to be, it's got to be right. And you feel this sense of responsibility and pressure. So we go through the whole process of buying a baby stroller, which is... If, if it weren't for COVID, we would have just gone to Bye Bye Baby and asked the employee 100 questions and test drove a few of them and picked one. But with COVID, we couldn't do that. So brand websites were static and boring. Um, YouTube reviews were biased and not really for us. So we found the best experience was going to the park in Chicago and watching couples use their stroller, couples that were like us or that might have similar um, lifestyles as us. And just asking them questions. Um, So with that, it was...
0: From six feet away, of
1: course. From about six (laughs) feet away. We were outside, you're right. It was all socially distanced. Um, But we would ask questions about their experience with the stroller. And I think that combined with my desire to do this next big thing, combined with everything that was happening in the Asian markets with live streaming of commerce, um made me want to get into the space. So that's when I sort of had the aha moment. I recruited a co-founder, a woman from Trunk Club, who I've known for 20 years, and it's been off to the races. So yeah, ShopFlix, we are like a television network where we tell stories. Uh, We tell stories on behalf of brands, founders, or products. Um, And after the story is told, you have this nice, beautiful click-to-buy feature, so you can easily click the product and buy it. Um, Some folks would say it's like a new take or a modern QVC. Mm -hmm. Uh, We don't like that necessarily because QVC is about selling and our business is more about getting uh, awareness for our brands or our stories told on behalf of the brands. But that's what ShopFlix is. We live um, in our own app and website environment, but really we get our videos distributed through YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, what have you. Um, We're really about getting awareness on behalf of our brands.
0: Well, at Storyhorse, we talk a lot about you know the importance of storytelling, and I think you just mentioned the that's kind of the one of the differentiators um, between Shopflix and something like a QVC home shopping network that's really just focused on pushing product. How do you how does Shopflix enable the brands that you work with to really tell their stories authentically?
1: So our business at Shopflix is much like a television network, so much like HGTV has a basket of shows that all celebrate DIY. You know, they have, you know, Chip and Joanna Gaines on one end and Property Brothers on the other end of the spectrum. We're the same way. We have a bunch of shows that celebrate consumerism or consumer brands. So we will write television shows. We have a whole team of writers, mostly in LA, that will create content and write shows. And then we go to cast those shows in the same way that Steven Spielberg would go cast Brad Pitt. For a movie we go to brands and say hey listen we've written this story that needs a perfect founder to be cast in the show and in the process of reaching out to these brands we often find that sometimes the brands like to tell their story in a little bit different of a way so then we will work with them to write the story for for that brand
0: which is not unlike the process that you were speaking about you know working with an agency and sort of articulating a brand identity.
1: Exactly. Yeah. The founder has their own vision. Most of the brand, not all, but many of the brands we're talking to or that are existing, um, brand partners. We have about 60 of them. I'd say probably about half of them are sort of founder led. So, but not all, we have major, major companies that are our brand partner whether it's, you know, Stokey, the baby stroller company, ironically, um, or a number of others that hmm, are that's yeah. full circle. Yeah, it's very full circle. Ironically, it was Up A Baby product that I ended up buying, not Stokey, but if I had to rewind the clock still. That's what we
0: have. We're an Up a Baby <laughs> You're family. An up
1: a family. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so every business, every brand likes their story told. We found that it it's usually one of three things. It's either a brand story, so literally the brand itself, like what's special about the brand, or it's a founder story, right? If the founder's still involved, their origin story, or it's The product itself. So, what makes the product unique, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And we just try to write the brand into those shows. And then some brands like Tongue in Cheek. So, we have a show called Tanner Tries, which is really about sort of the funny nature. Thank you. Yeah. So good. The funny nature. We have some shows that will um, celebrate women empowerment that's breaking through, which is all about female founders. It's not just a matter of finding the brand or product or founder story. It's around kind of taking that second or third dimension mm-hmm. um, with them and finding out what their personality is and how they like it to be told. Um, some products like to be demonstrated. Some products like to be demonstrated, but by the founder, some products like to be demonstrated, but by the founder in a certain setting. So we have a show for that. Being in the media business, it's constant. Well, I say that as if I'm Barry Diller, but like now that I'm in the media business, it's this constant Feeding of the beast of content. We're always gonna need new stories. And the good news is is every day there's a new direct to consumer brand, there's a new startup, there's a new there's a new something. Matt matros. There's a with new the Matt story matros a story to tell. to tell. And I'm here there's, to tell it on yeah. topics. Um unfortunately for us, we are an awareness-based business and not a kind of sales, retail, sell-sell sell-based sell business. So our motivations are different. We just want awareness for our brands. We want our brands to get hundreds of thousands of views on their videos so that that translates to whatever their conversion metrics are um, versus some of the QVCs of the world, which are sell, 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 sell. So we're a little different.
0: That's exciting, and it sounds like it's really taking off. I mean, you officially launched in March?
1: June 9th. uh, Women's Wear Daily wrote a piece on us. It was sort of like our big announcement. Uh, we started selling to brands in March and started creating content sure. and producing shows either here in so Chicago or remote. So you have a,
0: a bank to, to launch with. Exactly.
1: I joked that when, you know, Netflix obviously didn't start as what they are now, but when Netflix, as we know it went live, they didn't just have, you know, Jaws and the Police Academy <laughs> movies. They had a bunch of movies, and we kind of were the same way. We yeah. wanted to have a catalog of content. Right yeah. now I think we're up to about 30 or so pieces that are finished and produced with another, gosh, two dozen or so in post-production that we're ready to drop. Um, We have amazing hosts. Uh, Some of our hosts are influencers. Some of them are traditional television talent like Tanner. And then we find the the way the brand wants to be told. Some of them want to be told by an influencer. Some of them want to be told with a little bit more nuance or art or craftsmanship to it. So everybody's different.
0: Well, I've downloaded the app, so.
1: Thank you for that. We look forward to selling you a 1,000 Yeti coolers. Love
0: it. So... Matt, we at Storyhorse love brand taglines, but we also love personal taglines too. So, not sure your level of familiarity with the Real Housewives franchise, but um, along those lines of their sort of intro, uh, you know, opening credits. If you had a personal tagline, and maybe you do, what would it be? It's funny. I'm not
1: familiar with how the taglines work within the Real Housewives, and as I told you before we got on here, I have a few that. That sort of resonate with me depending on the mood. I always tell entrepreneurs to find what they're best in the world at. So I like to think that every human on this planet is the best in the world at something. And that's what he or she needs to find. Sometimes folks find that very early on in their life. Sometimes it takes folks many decades. I was pretty fortunate that to me, I think. What I'm best in the world at is understanding a consumer white space and then executing something against it. Um, So I would say my personal tagline is is find what you're best in the world at and pursue it, you know, without apologies. It's Quite a tagline. That would be a, that's a long bumper sticker.
0: That's a long bumper sticker, but I like it. And don't be afraid to fail. And don't be afraid to get fired.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Or may, yeah, or maybe it's fail hard, fail fast, there you right? Go. So yeah, yeah, don't yeah. be so rigid. Yeah. But
0: all right, so you get to. I go. get to. All right, well that wraps it up from us today on this episode of Brands Unbridled. Thank you, Matt, for joining us. This
1: was wonderful. I like telling my story, especially to storytellers.
0: Love it. Look at that full circle comment. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us, and thank you to all of our listeners. We'll catch you next time.